Great to see you. If you've never met, my name's Jay. I'm a part of the team here. Uh, I, I would actually never dress as the Pope nor Draymond Green for Halloween. That was made up. I didn't know they were going to say that. Uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, some of you know my story. Um, others of you are kind of newish to our church. If you are, a special welcome to you. We're really glad you're here. I hope you'll join us for Discover Westgate later this afternoon at 1230. Um, I'd love to meet you. But uh, a bit of my story. I um, was, I, I'm an immigrant child. I moved here to the States, here to California, here to the Bay Area when I was really young. And uh, when I entered school, when I went to first grade, some of you know this, I didn't speak any English. Um, so I was obviously nervous and I wanted to be American, you know what I mean? So I asked my mom to buy me a very American lunchbox and she bought me an Indiana Jones Temple of Doom lunchbox. And she was like, she's like one of those very conservative, fervent Christians. So I remember we argued a lot because it said Temple of Doom. She was like, this is satanic. I was like, no, it's American, you know? And uh, so she bought me this Temple of Doom. Maybe they're the same. I don't know. But um, she bought me this Temple of Doom Indiana Jones lunchbox. And I was like, I'm an American boy. I'm going to fit right in. But there was a problem. One of my early days of school, I'm Korean American, my mother jam-packed my very American Indiana Jones lunchbox with uh, food um, called kimbap, which is Korean sushi. Now here, yes, here now in 2022, if a first grader brings kimbap to school, he or she is like the cool kid. This was not the case in the early mid-80s. So I go to school with my very American Indiana Jones lunchbox. I sit in the cafeteria. Everyone's got their nasty sloppy joes and stuff. And I open my lunchbox, and while everyone's shoving their faces with disgusting sloppy joe, they look at my incredible array of Korean sushi, and what do first graders do? They're like, what is that? So gross. Now, I didn't speak English, so I didn't understand the words they were saying, but I could tell, right? I was being ostracized, marginalized. I was being judged. That's the very first clear memory I have of being judged. I was six years old, and this is over 35 years ago, and I still remember the feeling so vividly. And if you were to take a little bit of time and think about maybe the first clear memory you have of being judged by someone or a group of someones, the memory is probably very clear to you as well, right? Because the feeling of being judged, there's a, a unique way in being judged sort of sears itself into our hearts. And I think there's lots of reasons for this. But one of the reasons that I've thought about in the last couple of weeks as I've thought about this teaching, I think one of the reasons why the feeling of being judged sears so deeply into our hearts is because it has a unique way of simultaneously making us feel both exposed and unseen at the same time. It's very rare to have an experience like that, but being judged by someone offers that experience of being utterly exposed and at the same time feeling totally unseen. I remember sitting in that ca cafeteria at Summerdale Elementary School and these kids judging me for something that I, I didn't, there was nothing wrong with eating the food of my culture and yet feeling so judged at the same time, I felt so exposed, all eyes on me in a way that was totally unwanted and yet at the same time, 
Even though all eyes were on me, I felt completely unseen. Like these kids were projecting onto me a version of me that isn't me. Can you relate? This is why being judged hurts so much. Here's the thing. Judgment, when humans judge one another, it's not just painful for the person being judged. It's heartbreaking for the person judging. One of the reasons for that is because the one judging in not truly seeing the person for who they really are becomes blind. The 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he put it this way. He said that judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. We'll talk more about that later. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Now, Bonhoeffer didn't whip this idea up out of thin air. He is borrowing from the teachings of Jesus himself. And for a while now, our church family has been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of what we call the the New Testament. And we're in chapter 7, and Jesus is beginning to give all of these profound teachings. And here, in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, he talks about judging one another. And this is what he says. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus says, when you judge another person, it is as if you have this giant wooden plank in your eye. And all the while you are trying to pull out specks of sawdust in the other person's eye. You know, typically we have these paintings of Jesus and he is almost always, throughout Christian tradition and almost every painting of Jesus, he's almost always very serious and stoic, right? But many scholars believe, based on stories like this and so many others, that Jesus had a deep well of humor. Jesus actually quite favored using absurdity in many of his teachings. So, We don't get as much of that by just reading the word. So let me just visually show you what Jesus is saying here. When we judge, this is what we look like. This is you when you judge. Shout out to my friend Kyle Burke, our student ministries pastor who made this for me. This is actually quite sturdy, Kyle. It's really impressive. Now, here's what's really interesting. As you all know, I wear glasses, and without glasses, I already can't see. And now, cutting off visual from one of my eyes, I literally, like this front row, I can't see the look on your faces. I don't know if you're smiling or you're thinking about leaving because this is so ridiculous. (laughs) But this is what you look like when you judge. And here's what I can tell you. I can barely see you right now. 
That's the point Jesus is making. I mean, this is absurd, right? Is this not absurd? I'm embarrassed right now just doing this. This is so absurd. (laughs) Steve is questioning his decision about this transition. It's like, what did I do? Who is this young man and what did I do? It's absurd. And that's the point Jesus is making. To judge another is, is an absurd act of blindness. Take the plank out of your own eye before you begin to try to take sawdust out of the eyes of others. So let's ask a question. Why do we judge? Because let's just, I'm not going to have a, a show of hands because it would be like pointless. Everyone's hand would go up if I were to ask the question, how many of us have judged someone else recently? It's all of us. In big and little ways, typically for most of us, insidiously enough, it's in small ways. It's in the corner of our mind or deep in the recesses of our hearts, right? And sometimes you judge strangers like the driver who seems like they can't drive. It's like, oh my gosh, come on, right? Or you're on the plane and that young mom can't control their young child because they're fly- and they're crying the entire flight and you're just like, come on, did you not prepare for this? And sometimes we've got Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up and many of us are already bracing ourselves for the emotional tension of some of those family gatherings. And you know, you just, you're already feeling the judgment in your heart, right? Like, oh, Uncle Stan or Auntie Gina or whatever, right? So why do we judge? In um, social psychology, there's a term called actor-observer bias. And uh, in the world of social psychology, actor-observer bias, it's um, a way to describe the human tendency to attribute our own circumstances to external causes while simultaneously attributing other circumstances to internal causes. So let me give you a classic example of this. In the workplace, you might uh, miss out on a promotion and maybe a coworker gets a promotion. And you might say to yourself, well, I didn't get the promotion because the boss hates me. But my coworker got the promotion because he plays office politics. This is actor observer bias. There's nothing in you that, that goes to, well, maybe I didn't get the promotion because I'm not good at my job. And you don't think to yourself, well, maybe she got the promotion because she's really good at what she does. Typically, we revert, initially at least, to I didn't get the promotion because somebody else doesn't like me. It's not me, it's someone else. And she got the promotion because she does all the conniving sort of office politics that people do to move up the corporate ladder. Now, I'm not saying we do this all the time, but it is one of the primary reasons why we judge. Social psychologists are almost unanimously in agreement on this fact that we have this thing called actor-observer bias. And again, I think we do this in both big and little ways. Now, I've come to believe, as I've thought about this, and read some about it, I've come to believe that essentially we do this for two reasons. We judge one another for two key primary reasons. One, we often judge in order to position ourselves over and above others. 
We judge in order to position ourselves over and above others. This is when we say things like, man, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she's like that. What a mess. I would never. Right? You ever find yourself saying something like that, even in your mind? Yes? I would never. I can't believe. Wow. I would never do that. I would never be like that. We judge to position ourselves over and above other people. And... We judge to protect ourselves from being exposed. This is when we say or feel or think thoughts like, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she did that. What a mess. At least I'm not that. We judge to protect ourselves from exposure of our own flaws and our own brokenness and highlight the flaws and the brokenness of others. So this this is important. Two key reasons, I think, again, not the only reasons, but two primary reasons why we find ourselves judging so often. To position ourselves over and above others, man, I would never, right? I would never do that. Or to protect ourselves from exposure. At least I'm not doing that. Now, both desires to position ourselves over others, and to protect ourselves from exposure. Both desires, I've come to believe, are tied to our shame. In other words, I believe so often we judge because we have shame. The um, psychologist and Christian writer, author, Kurt Thompson, in a fantastic book, that I would highly recommend called The Soul of Shame, he says this, the act of judging others has its origins in our self-judgment. I love this, I hate the line, but I also love it. Shamed people shame people. Shamed people shame people. Long before we are criticizing others, the source of that criticism has been planted fertilized and grown in our own lives, directed at ourselves, and often in ways we are mostly unaware of. When you find yourself judgmental toward others, I would encourage you, ask yourself the question, where is that coming from? And ask more specifically the question, What shame is giving birth to this judgment toward others? Is there something in me that I need to hide, that I am afraid of exposure? Am I positioning myself over others or protecting myself from others because I am trying to hide something? The answer will not always be yes, but in my own experience, I have found that the answer is almost always, yeah, there's something in me from which this judgment is being birthed. So the question is, what what do we do? What do we do? Back to Jesus' words. Matthew 7, 5. First, first, not only, first, take the plank out of your own eye. Take the plank out of your own eye. Notice the metaphor is not of like a weapon in your hand. That's not the metaphor Jesus uses for judgment. Instead, he uses a metaphor 
of a plank in the eye, an obstruction in your eye, which blurs your vision. In other words, most of the time, you and I, we don't judge others because we want to intentionally harm them, right? I mean, unless you, and, and some, some people are this way, but for most of us in this room, the reality is when we find ourselves judging others, we're not thinking to ourselves intentionally, I'm judging them because I want to hurt them. That's not typically how judgment works. And instead, we unintentionally harm others with our judgment, primarily because we don't see clearly. We don't see them nor ourselves clearly. Judgment is most of the time an obstruction in your eye. It keeps you from seeing clearly. It blinds you. And so, what does Jesus say? Take the plank out of your eye. In other words, begin to see clearly. What does that mean? Romans chapter 12, what does the writer Paul say? He says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. One of the ways in which we take the plank of judgment out of our eyes is to begin thinking not about all that is wrong with the other person, but to ask the question, okay, what is the most sober, tempered, honest, genuine thing about me in this moment? Why do I feel such contempt or condemnation toward that person and the way they're behaving or the choices they are making? Begin with you. Think with sober judgment, not about the other, but about yourself first. And we take the plank out of our eye also by seeing ourselves as part of a greater whole, by seeing ourselves as members of one global sort of family in many ways, the family of humans. In other words, It's very easy to judge when you see the other person as utterly detached from you. It becomes much more difficult to judge when you recognize the the truth that this person is connected to you in some form or fashion, especially when it comes to the church. Let me just be really honest with you. In... um, uh, Gosh, what is it, 2022 now? In a couple of years, first of all, we have midterm elections coming up. And then in a couple of years, we're gonna have a presidential election. And when I think back to a couple of years ago and four years before that, and I think back about the last 10 years of just politics in our country, regardless of what you think about the political climate of our day, you know one of the most heartbreaking things to me is how many of us as followers of Jesus have seemingly pledged our allegiance first and foremost to the path of American politics. And how much judgmentalism has been spewed like arrows toward one another in this room. Like I see your Facebook posts, you guys. And it is gut-wrenching. 
Now, I'll talk more about this in a moment. What I am not saying, what I believe Jesus is not saying is just blind acceptance of all things. Not at all. Not at all. But judgment, talk more about this too in a second, but judgment is like blind condemnation of one another. The only way to do that is to believe that this person is, is not attached to you in any way. But if you continue reading Paul's words in Romans 12, what does he say? Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many, form one body. We, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. When you judge someone especially within the church family, it is like your left hand telling your right hand, why do you suck? It's like, you're one body. It's like your right hand telling your left foot, why are you sore? It's like, what are you talking about? If my foot hurts and you ask me how I'm doing, I don't tell you, dude, I'm doing awesome, except my foot hurts. I just tell you, oh, my foot hurts, and it's a hassle, and it's a, it's a pain, and I need some relief. You are one body connected to one another. Now, again, this is how we take the plank out of our eye, which is not the only thing Jesus says to do. He says, that's the first thing you should do, right? It leads to a question, like, if I'm not supposed to judge, what does that mean? Am I never supposed to correct wrongdoing or injustice or bad behavior or whatever? No. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, yes, first, take the plank out of your own eye. But then what? Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus does not say, just take the plank out of your own eye. Don't worry about the speck. That's not your speck. Don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus says. He says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly. You will see yourself clearly for who you are. You will see the other person clearly. That they are not detached from you. They are a part of you. You are one body. And then, seeing clearly, you'll be able to take the speck out of your brother's or sister's eye. I believe that what Jesus is speaking against in this text is judgment as blind condemnation of another human being. Judgment as a means of denigrating another person, reducing them to the sum of their flaws and mistakes. But Jesus is also saying, once you see clearly, you are then able to do the work in love of removing the speck from your brother's eye. This is not blind judgment. This is loving correction. Let me differentiate this way. There's a lot to say here, but just as a summary way of sort of succinctly explaining this. I believe blind judgment says this flaw or this mistake is who you are. Blind judgment is a way of saying you are a mistake. That's how I felt first grade in that room, that cafeteria. But loving correction is actually the opposite in many ways. Loving correction says, when, when loving correction sees wrongdoing, injustice, bad behavior, ungodly behavior, loving correction says, actually, this is not who you are. 
This is not who you are. God has made you for more. He is, you are more. Blind judgment says this is who you are. These mistakes, these flaws, that's you. Loving correction says this is not who you are. I see you clearly made in the image of God, made in love, made for more. If blind judgment says you are something wrong, loving correction simply says you did something wrong. And we all do something wrong all the time. But this is not who you are. This is not who I am. That's the difference. Now, I want to speak pastorally just a little bit, very briefly, to um, some healthy boundaries when it comes to loving correction. Because sometimes it can be misunderstood. A couple of thoughts. First, In order for there to be loving correction between individuals within a community, I believe there must be some form or at least a foundation of a pre-existing relationship of love and care. And trust equity is really key. Several weeks ago, David Kim spoke on belonging. And he talked about how there's an order to all of these key sort of um, ways to belong. He talked about how if accountability comes first, it can actually turn into abuse, right? If, if I don't know you, I've exemplified no sort of relational connection with you. We don't really have trust. But I come to you and I just say, here are the seven things that you're doing wrong and you need to change them right now. That's actually really dangerous. But no accountability whatsoever in a loving relationship is just as dangerous. If I just kind of let you do you, that's the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus. So in the same way, I think when loving correction exists in a healthy way, it's built upon the foundation of a pre-existing relationship of love and care and trust. I would also say that the person must be open to receiving loving correction. This does not mean that they are open to changing their life. You don't control outcomes. Dallas Willard once said that, and it's been a game changer for me. God controls outcomes. So that's not what I mean. I just mean that the person, again, in a relationship of love and trust with you has to be open. Yeah, like, I want to hear your thoughts. I believe that has to exist for loving correction to be exchanged in a healthy way. The last thing I would say is in, um, in extending loving correction to another, uh, we must not do so at risk of harm to self. Um, what I mean is some, some of you have been in or maybe you currently are in a significantly abusive situation. And you find yourself sort of cyclically staying in the vortex of pain and abuse, believing this sort of whisper in your head, like, I can change him. I can change her if I just stay. Here's what I would suggest. This is a much longer conversation. I actually think that there are certain moments when people, specific people, they get into such brokenness that the most loving thing you can do is to remove yourself in order to remove the temptation for the person to further harm you and by, as a result, further dehumanize themselves. Does this make sense? Now, again, I could talk for another hour about that. Here's what I will say. If that is you um, and, and you want to talk and you need help, let us know. 
We have a care ministry here. It's, fair, it's really robust, I would say. And there are all sorts of ways we can come alongside you. So um, even after the service, if that hits a nerve for you, then come talk to me or Steve or Dana or um, Ben Pierce. He's our care pastor. Any of our elders or staff that are around, we would love to come alongside you. So those are a few thoughts. Now, as we sort of land the plane about judgment, Blind judgment is different, again, than loving correction because love really matters and sometimes love corrects. And I love these words from Mother Teresa. She once said that if you judge people, you have no time to love them. I believe we experience freedom from the temptation and the tendency to judge one another by choosing love. And I know that's a very Christian answer and it's like, of course, you're gonna say that. But let me explain. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. The writer, Peter, says this. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Typically, we want to judge the sins of others, but the scriptures tell us, no, 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 no. Let love cover the multitude of sins. And then Peter, as he does often, gets really practical. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Rather than judging one another, we are called to love one another. And practically what that means is to offer hospitality and service to one another. So I wanna give you a moment here, mental exercise. It shouldn't take long. Think about a person or a group of people you are most tempted to judge in your life. Think about them right now. I'm looking at your faces. I know if you're thinking about them. There should be like a slight grimace on your face. You're like uh, gritting your teeth, right? Think, does everybody have someone? Who does not have someone? Is anyone just like, I don't ever, I love everyone. There, there might be people like that here. Okay, everyone have someone? Like, can you see their face? Yes? Okay, this is, <laughs> no one's engaged because it's too uncomfortable. It's like, I think so. Okay, I'm going to assume you all have someone, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, your spouse, the person you're sitting next to you right now. I don't know. Someone in your family. Me, right? Some of you are like, you. I judge you. I don't like you. Okay, think about that person. I want to ask you a couple of questions. What would it take? for you to be hospitable toward them this week? Like, what's one, th think about this right now, mentally think about it. What's one thing you can do? And you'll like grit your teeth doing it. You can't believe I'm asking you to do this. How can you be hospitable toward that person this week? Just one little thing. What would it, what would it look like for you to serve that person this week? What would it look like? What would it take? Can you do it? Because here's what I can tell you. In the moment you extend love through hospitality and service toward this person or these people, at least in that moment, it will be impossible for you to judge them. You will not be able to judge and offer loving hospitality and service at the same time. And ultimately, this isn't just for their good. It's for our good. It's for your good. It's for our freedom. The writer Henry Nouwen put it this way. Often I have asked myself, 
what would it be like if I no longer had any desire to judge another or be controlled by the judgment of others? I would walk the earth as a very light person indeed. Is that not what you want? Don't you, like me, want to take that backpack of rocks called judgment, judgment stones you throw at so many people? I do the same. Don't you just want to take that backpack off and walk free, walk lightly? It's possible. Because while judgment is like a backpack of stones, love through hospitality and service is like the air you breathe. It weighs nothing, but it gives life. I'm going to ask Mark and the team to come back up. We're going to sing and respond here in a moment. You know, I told you that story about feeling so utterly judged when I was um, a first grader. And I, again, because I didn't speak English at the time, I just, I had no friends. I was really alone. But uh, I guess it was probably like a month or so into school that year. Um, I noticed there was a tall, lanky kid, blonde hair, blue-eyed, very American kid that would walk the same path to and from school with me every day. And um, he would walk alone. And I I, I remember feeling like, man, I wish I could speak English so I could go up to him and try to befriend him. But one day, maybe about a month into the school year, he came to me. And even though I didn't really speak speak English, he just, he navigated it well. And I found out his name was Stephen. And I found out Stephen lived in the same sort of um, condo complex where my mom and I lived with my aunt and my uncle at the time. And he just lived like a block or two down the street. That's what I realized. And so Stephen and I began playing every day through my broken English. We would play with our G.I. Joes and he taught me how to throw a football. And I was like, when I threw that pigskin, I was like, I'm American. I'm finally American. And I remember um, Stephen being my one and only friend for the two years I went to Summerdale Elementary School. And it's not like he didn't have other friends. At school, he had other friends, but he would always draw me in. And I went from feeling judged to feeling seen. And um, again, some of you know this part of my story. I moved around a ton when I was a kid. And so I went to a different school later on in second grade and then a different school after that for third and fourth grade, a school called Vincy Park Elementary. When I was at Vincy Park in fourth grade, by this time I spoke English. I had some friends at school. The first day of fourth grade, I go into Mrs. Sanchez's classroom. I sit down and all the kids are walking in and a familiar looking face walks in through the, through the door. A tall, lanky, blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. And it's Stephen. And he sits a few desks away from me and I'm thinking in my mind, is that Stephen from first grade? And at this point, again, I speak English. So during one of the recess hours, he's all alone. I go to him and I say, hey, are you Stephen? And then he looks at me for a while and he recognizes my face and he goes, Jay? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you can talk. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And I invited Stephen to come play kickball with me and my friends, which we did every lunch hour. 
I invited him to come play kickball with us. And this kid who had seen me and was now racked with nerves walking into a new school because his family had moved, felt seen. This is what love and hospitality and service can do. It can help us, it pulls us out of the muck and the mire of being exposed and unseen, judged. And instead, it pulls us into community, into belonging, where we recognize we're all insecure. We're all flawed. We're all broken. This is what Christ, our King, did for us. The only one who had every right to judge says this, John 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, I love that, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Extend hospitality and service to one another. See clearly, take the plank out of your eye and begin in love taking the speck out of one another's eyes. As you see yourself in one another clearly. Jesus, our King, who could have, and I would suggest to you, should have judged us, chooses not to. And instead, he calls us friends. In, in fact, he does that in such a profound way. He calls us friends in such a way, with so much love, that he comes and he gives his life for us. He chooses us in that way before we ever chose him. The one who could have and should have judged us and condemned us instead says, no, I choose you and I love you. The king becomes the servant. The master becomes the hospitable host. And because of that, we have life. So we're gonna stand and sing and respond and we're gonna pray as we sing that God would free us from our tendency to judge one another. And as we do, I wanna ask you, if you are a follower of Jesus during these next couple of songs, I wanna invite you to come. We have four stations, two in the front, two in the back, and we'll have some staff and elders there um, to serve you communion. And they will say to you, this is the body and blood of Christ given for you. The reason we often serve communion here, it's not because there's some sort of hierarchy or because you need some conduit between God and you. That's not it at all. We serve communion for two reasons. One, as a reminder that we receive communion together as one body. The body of Christ given for his body. We also serve communion because communion is not a gift we take, it is a gift we receive from our um, servant king, our most hospitable host, who instead of judging us, loves us and gives his body and blood so that we might have life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing and come at any time to receive the bread and the cup.